This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is March 9th, 2023, and I'm Ian Bushfield, flying solo today. On today's show, I have an interview with Ottawa lawyer Paul Champ on the Public Order Emergencies Inquiry. But first, I'm going to give you a bit of a roundup on the bevy of new bills before the BC legislature. As always, make sure to support this show at patreon.com slash Let's jump into British Columbia. There are at least five new bills out in the legislature this week. There's also a Budget Act on there as well. Bill 11 is the Election Amendment Act. This is a bill that will make a number of changes to the Elections Act. The government claims these will fight disinformation and improve accessibility. There's a number of changes around uh, third-party advertising rules, uh, how you can cast your ballot. Really interesting piece that I'll have to dig into more Bill 12 is the Intimate Images Protection Act. This was announced in the throne speech. This is our how the province will take further action to crack down on revenge porn and the sharing of intimate images. Specifically, they are going to give people new civil actions that you can take to sue people, essentially, if they are sharing these images and help uh, give the courts tools to stop them and require service providers to remove such images. Uh, Some of these will take place through the Civil Resolution Tribunal, which is a more accessible approach than the courts. So this will be an interesting one to see uh, it get broken down. Uh, The next three are all kind of around the same questions of gender equity. Bill 13, the Pay Transparency Act, does two major things. Number one, it brings out the promise and that the BC Liberals have been trying to get them to fulfill for a number of years, which is have companies report on their gender pay gap. And that will be required over the next few years. So it'll start this year with the provincial government uh, and crown agencies having to report their pay gap. And then within a few years, every company with at least 50 employees will have to publicly report the gender pay gap. And there'll be regulations to develop to help define what that means exactly. The other half of the bill is really interesting in that all future job postings in British Columbia will have to include a salary range on them. So that's a super useful way to help reduce uh, the pay gap and just make transparency super interesting. It will also prevent employers from asking you about past pay, which is a good way to make sure that you are getting paid what you're worth and not just what they think they can cheap out on. Bill 14 is a Miscellaneous Statutes Modernization Amendment Act. But what's really interesting about this one is it amends two, I think it's like 200 different bills, which is a significant, or 200 different laws, which is a significant amount, right? But what this bill is just doing is removing gendered language and putting in uh, they, them, or other ungendered approaches, replacing sons and daughters with children and things like that to just be more inclusive. This is something I think I've talked about before on the podcast that the government is trying to do, and it's one of those simple things that can just make our laws more inclusive. And similarly, the 
Bill 15 will amend the Vital Statistics Act. This is going to allow people to have the option to request a new birth certificate with no gender listed. This is super important for uh, non-binary and intersex people and people who just don't feel that that's something they want to have on their birth certificate. So uh, good on the government for introducing simple amendments that will make the lives of gender diverse and trans people in this province better in a small way especially as we're seeing such a backlash to trans people and trans rights across the world. At least we're doing a little bit here. The other thing that's really interesting in the legislature right now is that Bill 5 is still sitting at first reading. This is the bill around, the very confusing bill around lawyers and unionization. Specifically, there's a bit of coverage in BC Today this week that talks about how the British Columbia Government Lawyers Association is considering job action as they are negotiating with the province and the government. This group is trying to form a union, and that action is what prompted the government to introduce this bill in the first place and use it as like a dagger to hold above their heads. This bill will force them into the Provincial Employees Association, but it excludes legislative drafting lawyers who, I guess, would not be allowed to unionize. They're kind of at an impasse. Uh, The government is saying it may or may not move this forward. It's not even clear if they fully understand what is in the bill uh, based on some of the comments in BC today, but this is definitely a labor standoff to watch, particularly for what tries to paint itself as a pro-labor government. And finally, before I throw it over to the interview, just a piece of shameless self-promotion, the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada and BC Humanist Association, which I'm on parental leave from, have released a big new report analyzing the website of hundreds of so-called crisis pregnancy centers across Canada. It finds, unsurprisingly, they're quite deceptive and quite anti-choice. So do go check that report out. The link will be in our show notes, or you can look up the websites for the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada or bchumanist.ca, and it will be posted prominently there. But yeah, better access to abortion is necessary in this country for reproductive justice. And with that, here's my interview. Joining me now on Politicoast is Paul Champ, the principal lawyer with Champ and Associates out in Ottawa. Welcome, Paul. It's good to talk to you again. Like I was uh, saying before the pod, we used to be on the board together at the BC Civil Liberties Association. Today, you're a little more freelanced, I guess, uh, <laughs> and just otherwise continuing to fight for human rights and civil liberties. Uh, always great to talk to you, and thanks for the invite. So, I wanted to have you on because you were intimately involved in the Public Order Emergency Commission inquiry, the Rouleau inquiry into Justin Trudeau invoking the Emergencies Act. You represented the citizens of Ottawa and the businesses of Ottawa. Maybe before we even get into the inquiry, just like take us back to the days of the occupation. You were in Ottawa. Mm. What was that like from just your personal perspective even? Oh, yeah. It was um, it was really chaotic and challenging. Um, I live downtown and my office is downtown and, uh, you know, I've got three kids. And so this is, you know, where I make my home and all our friends and or, you know, a lot of our friends and it was our community. Right. So um, it was, um, you know, the first weekend we, you know, we had the big, you know, all the 400 or 500 trucks, semi trucks, like parked all through downtown and, uh, you know, the, the rowdy demonstrations and protests, but, you know, Ottawa kind of just said, okay, you know, Hey, that's, that's okay. And, We'll 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 suck it up on this one, but once it started continuing, um, 
and and it was clear that it was a bit more ominous right like there was you know uh all kinds of reports on social media and in the news about different incidents that were happening and the police weren't responding and then if you just walk down there you walk down to like you know the core area where the protests were were happening uh you know the whatever 15 to 20 square blocks uh it was um it was almost dystopian uh with the horns the horn the horn honking was the most profound uh symbol for them you know for those protesters but um most disturbing to to residents right like I don't know if you've ever been on the highway and you're behind a, a semi truck and you hear the big honk honk. That's which is kind of like, oh, it's kind of a bit jarring, but uh, it, that's not the way they they were doing. It. They would just hold on to the horn for ten minutes straight at a time. That was their, you know, as we later saw or found out, they had a schedule that they would all hold their horns for ten minutes at a time. So four hundred semi trucks just holding on. It was just this loud like really really loud where you could barely talk to someone almost you know standing beside you uh din that that echoed out across you know the you know a good portion of the city and um then they they wouldn't leave and it became like the downtown wasn't our city anymore and uh, yeah it was it was not a great time to live in downtown well you weren't just a passive observer right you got involved in a court action to do an initial effort to stop that noise correct mm-hmm. yeah i did yeah so uh about a week in um i was uh, approached by some residents of a, a downtown uh, uh apartment or condo building and uh they were just like you know we've they had a big meeting with the police uh the you know the condo association had requested the police to come down you know to kind of complain about all the things that they'd been experiencing you know nodding you know having unable to get their vehicles out of their own building, the street harassment and and the horns and, you know, everything else. And um, the police just said, well, no, we're not going to, we can't do anything right now. We're not doing anything about this. And they're just like, well, this is crazy. So uh, we were consulted and um, I, I turned my mind to it and uh, we, we agreed to take, you know, to represent one of the individuals to, to bring, uh, a lawsuit against the protesters. Initially, we weren't intending the protest, the the, lo- the lawsuit to go very long. It was more just about trying to get an injunction to stop the horns and and hopefully, you know, get the protesters to realize that, oh, hey, you know, you've had your time here. You know, you've seriously disrupted the people of downtown Ottawa for eight or nine days, and we've heard your message. Um, but uh, you know, then it went on. So yeah. Anyways, yeah. I, I brought a, a emergency court injunction, had evidence from doctors and uh, sound people from downtown to show how significant the impact was of these horns and uh, got a court order prohibiting them from honking those air horns and uh, train horns uh, in downtown. And did the court, uh, did the police enforce that? And did it shut off the horns at least? Well, it, it shut off the horns uh, because they actually respected it for a while. The the protest organizers were put, well, one pro. Ironically, you know, the the only, in, in some ways, one of the most infamous protest organizers, uh, Pat King, and the one you know most least likely to sort of respect laws, etc., was the one guy who did put out a message telling the truckers to hey, stop the horns, and they did stop them completely for. I'd say maybe a good three or four or maybe five days. 
Uh, and then after that, it just became more erratic. It was nothing like it was for that first 10 days where they were just basically honking nonstop from like 7 a.m. till 10 or 11 or 12 at night. Um, but it, it did have some impact. But the police, although they had this injunction where they could have, uh, you know, taken enforcement action, they, they never, they never enforced it, uh, which, you know, was, was part of the pattern that we saw and was part of really what led to the government having to invoke the emergency. Yeah, so that was invoked on February 14th and they had cleared the occupation and revoked it by the 23rd triggering and invoking the act triggers the inquiry that we have the final report mm-hmm. finally how did what was your mm-hmm. role in the actual inquiry like what did that look like like we mentioned you represented the citizens and businesses what does that actually mean tangibly right so you know in a public inquiry there's often a number of different parties that get standing uh you know who are trying to um, ensure that their perspective or their issues are represented and reflected. So, you know, you had the city of Ottawa had council, the Ottawa police had council, the Ontario provincial police, the federal government, um, uh, other cities that were affected, like city of Windsor was represented. Different provinces like Alberta and Manitoba uh, were represented because they're, you know, again, it wasn't just in Ottawa. Obviously, there was also um, sympathy protests in other provinces. Um, so everyone, all these different institutions had counsel and the convoy organizers themselves had counsel, but there was no one really representing the residents and citizens, you know, and businesses of Ottawa, uh, who, you know, in many ways felt betrayed by our local authorities, you know, really let down by our, our municipal officials and our municipal leaders and our, our local police leaders. So, um, there was a really strong interest that the that the people of Ottawa, the community, the the citizens and residents of Ottawa, Ottawa should have their own voice in this inquiry, and so that was uh, the role that, that we played. So over a number of months, the Justice Rouleau, you know, holds hearings, has different lines of questioning. You know, most prominently, Doug Ford and his uh, public safety minister, I believe, uh, invoked parliamentary mm-hmm. privilege, refusing to come and speak. Mm-hmm. But and we and mm-hmm. we can come back to that. You might be limited a little in how well you can answer this, but how how did you view that that process in terms of getting to the facts and issues that we wanted to know out of this? Well, you know, uh, in one way, broadly speaking, I would say it was quite uh, a transparent inquiry. Um, It was moving very fast, which made it really challenging from a procedural fairness perspective uh, for everybody. Everybody was under those constraints. Like we went, whatever it was, I guess, six weeks or seven weeks, five days a week. uh, And we were sitting, you know, I don't know if there's any lawyers that listen to your podcast, but we were sitting 10 to 12 hours a day with like really short breaks. Uh, we were the, the, uh, commission even like catered the meals for the lawyers, but not, not to be nice, but to ensure that like we, we yeah. couldn't leave the building. Right. You know, so I was walking in there every morning at 8 30 AM and it was rare that I left that building at, you know, before 8 30 PM, uh, and some nights later, nine or 10 PM. Right. So it was pretty intense, but we heard a really wide range of witnesses from every level of government, you know, uh, municipal, provincial, federal, 
uh, a range of different police uh, uh, witnesses. Uh, you know, there was CSIS, you know, our national security intelligence agency. Uh, we heard from the protesters themselves, the organizers, and um, uh, and we had an enormous amount of documents that were disclosed. So, um, you know, we really did, I, I would say, in fairness to the commission, we I think we did get to really understand what was going on behind the scenes in terms of the governmental response or the police response. And, and you know, we're able to really uncover, you know, the, the multiple levels of failure, um, you know, that resulted in, you know, we're, what was really, you know, pretty traumatic for the well, people let's of talk about Ottawa. Those findings, those failures. Um, I guess the first mm-hmm. big chunk of the report itself, this is a massive report. I'm going to be honest. I have not fully read it. I have like skimmed a bit of the summary because the summary is 273 pages. This is an obnoxious <laughs> amount. Of, I guess it's one of those things. If they had more time, it would have been shorter. Yeah, they could have made it more concise. If you read it through, Ian, actually, it, it's it's mm. it can be repetitive, uh, or not can be. It is repetitive once you get into some of the later chapters. There's a lot of you know uh, going through the same information again and again but just kind of in a slightly different context so yeah for sure if they had more time i think it would have been about a third the size <laughs> uh, the big chunk off the top uh talks about the convoy movement its uh origins and how the protest itself went down what do you think are the takeaways that people who don't have the time to read this should be um pulling out of this about where this movement came from and what they actually did beyond what, you know, we've already said from your experience in Ottawa. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think the report should be like viewed as a definitive overview of the, uh, you know, the protesters and, and who they were and what they were there for. But there was some, you know, there was a lot of good information there that the, you know, a lot of the protest leaders or organizers um, kind of came together uh after having been involved in other types of political issues or protests, including some who had come to Ottawa before and other sort of, you know, oh, convoyed, convoyed Ottawa protests. There have been a few others. You know, the Yellow Vests protests. Um, there was an earlier convoy protest just the year before. So there had been a few dry runs of something like this. And the issues that those previous convoy protests uh, you know, ha- had brought forward w- were different than this one, right? They were they were more sort of uh, uh, extreme anti-government types of folks, uh, you know, looking Western separatism were some of the issues that were raised and et cetera in those other protests. But it was those people who then sort of transplanted those ideas of this form of protest um, in the context of, uh, you know, the COVID pandemic and all the public health measures and the fact that, you know, there was so many people across Canada who, you know, were, you know, as all of us were very stressed and uh, because of the public health measures having serious disruptions in their lives, uh, some people were just very angry and, and looking for someone to blame. And some people were, you know, were listening to some different things online that I would say are very, very false and were blaming the government. And so, then some of these protest organizers who've been involved in other movements were able to um, sort of harness that energy or that um, anger and come together and and organize this this event that um, you know really really took off. I think it had, and that and that's what this report reflects from some of the evidence and looking through the history of some of the individuals who were involved in the protest. And um, the commissioner, in fairness, he says you know there was a lot of social. 
uh, an economic uh, hardship for people in Canada. And it was really, um, you know, a simmering pot uh, of, of um, uh, um, political and social menu in Canada that, that um, you know, made this, this protest happen in the way so that it did. So the protest gets to Ottawa and it gets to the Windsor border and it gets to the Coots border and many other places. And it's a police failure is what it's described as. It's intelligence failures, it's lack of command, and it's just a collapse in many different ways. There's a section devoted to Chief Slowly himself in here. It's just uh, wide ranging. So take us through like how how did the police fail so like epically? It seems like they just opted to do nothing. Well, it was, uh, yeah. So the, the, the local policing failures in the, in, in, in large part sort of occurred in those first few days. Um, the first big failure was the intelligence failure. Um, in that they, they, you know, although there was a lot of information out there, um, they had concluded that this was going to be a very short-lived protest, that all these people were going to come to Ottawa and they were going to leave after the first weekend. Um, I mean, it, it sounds, for anyone who was kind of following the social media at the time, it sounds kind of stunningly implausible uh, that that was their conclusion. But we saw, you know, some of the information they were looking at and they and they were relying on their own previous experience with these other convoy protesters and it was very cold in ottawa at that time and they just kind of were like ah you know these guys will all come here and they will leave after three days but that was a that was a real intelligence failure because there were a lot of other signs out there like for example um some of the protesters had booked uh hotels for the block of a month Right. And the local hotels were like a little bit freaked out because they knew this was, you know, what was coming. You know, they knew this is for these protests and they were reporting that up to, you know, the city of Ottawa officials. And then that was kind of slowly getting to the Ottawa police. But, you know, those were some pretty good signs that this wasn't going to be a short lived thing. So there was the intelligence failure. And then the second thing was a bit of a tactical failure, which is that they allowed all of these big rigs to come downtown. That, you know, in many ways, I think that was the biggest mistake, because um, once all these big semi-trucks got downtown, the, moving them became impossible. Um, and, and not only did they let them come down, actually, the Ottawa police and the Ontario Provincial Police helped them come downtown. Uh, a lot of people in the rest of Canada don't, don't, may not know this, but um, the the Ottawa police actually were communicating with the protest organizers and were actually telling them where they, the trucks should park and were helping them and assisting them come downtown and where to park and were even telling them like the best routes to follow to get downtown. Um, but Was that from you know, the policing standpoint, uh, like control measure? Like we're going to do this, like police are often not working with protesters, but trying to facilitate a protest in a way that'll be least disruptive. Is that their defense here? 100%. 100%. And like both, you know, you and I know from being on the board of the BC Civil Liberties Association is that, you know, that is really the role of police. You know, police aren't about stopping protests and protests mm -hmm. aren't bad, right? You know, generally speaking, protests are great things like whatever someone is protesting my view is always that 
you know, like protests aren't something to be investigated. They're, they're things to be celebrated. When citizens are coming together and organizing together to come together for, for any kind of political issue, that's, that's a good thing. That's the sign of a healthy democracy. And police are trained. And in particular in Ottawa, I think, you know, like, ironically, the police in Ottawa are more tolerant of protests than probably most police forces across Canada and have more experience. And so they, they know, and because of their training, that, you know, you're, you're supposed to try to facilitate protests and help them in a way to be as least disruptive as possible, um, but allow them to, to, to exercise their, their freedom of assembly. And, and um, that's what, you know, I, the police were trying to do. Um, now, the, the failure little part of that, though, is that, you know, we as, you know, people have the right to protest, <laughs> but trucks don't necessarily have the right to protest. And we know from the documents that we got out of the inquiry is that they were, their view is that, well, we really can't stop them because this is a charter right. And, you know, if people want to protest charter right, we can't stop them. And even though some questions were raised by some <laughs> internally, well, but these are semi-trucks, the police really didn't dig into that issue and legally start thinking, well, well, yeah, that's right. Maybe we should at least stop the semi-trucks. That's not necessarily fully protected by the charter. They didn't, they didn't go through that. So that, that was the other failure. They, they really didn't do a lot of contingency planning. You know, once they kind of concluded that these guys were only going to come for three days, they they didn't come up with any backup plans like oh what do we do if they stay for longer than three days and they also didn't dig in hard about well what about the trucks are the trucks really protected by the charter and you know quite frankly they weren't really thinking about what are the safety and other risks that were that were connected with these trucks right like here we had all these huge trucks you didn't know what they were in them parked all over the place next to very sensitive government buildings. You know, like, you know, for a while there was a huge, um, one big truck with like a wrecking ball on it right beside the, like Langevin block, like the prime minister's office, you know, which is also a parliamentary building. And, you know, the police, I, I don't know. So, so the, that was the massive failure that sort of set the stage, right? The intelligence failure, the tactical failures. And once those trucks got downtown, and by the Monday after that first weekend, it was clear they weren't going to go. It was kind of over in many ways for the Ottawa police because they, by then, they did not have the capacity to to stop it. They didn't have uh, the to the trucks to remove, like the tow trucks to remove these big semis, and they didn't have enough police officers to meaningfully try to 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 enforce laws or try to stop them. And the police really knew, like that was the testimony we were getting. I mean, that's what we saw on the streets of Ottawa. They just weren't saying it at the time. But by the Monday after the first weekend, the police knew they were screwed. And they were saying to themselves internally that this is an occupation and we do not have the capacity to stop this or or meaningfully police it. And so let's just try to do whatever we can to avoid serious violence. And that was, that was more or less their threshold after that. It was a very, very high threshold. So they allowed a lot of lawless behavior. They did not do hardly, they really didn't do hardly any enforcement action. Um, and that was the scene in Ottawa for the following few weeks. And so when a police force gets in that situation, there should, I'm presuming, uh, be a mechanism to appeal to 
the province or other, especially in a city like Ottawa, mm. where policing is such a complex issue where you have multiple jurisdictions overlapping because of the National um, Capital Coalition. Or- How did that break down? Because it clearly also broke down, right? Well, now you've put your finger on really what the heart of the problem was, right? Like there, there, there was a policing failure here for sure. But, you know, the, the major part of the policing failure was just that first weekend. Uh, after that, really, it was, you know, a failure of governance and a failure of federalism um, because there wasn't good means to, to you know, uh, uh, trigger a mechanism that would bring in the reinforcements. Um, you know, we, in the first few days, the, the police chief was asking for help, like the local Ottawa police chief was asking for help and reinforcements from the Ontario Provincial Police and from the RCMP. But uh, those other forces did not have an obligation, at least the way he did it. They didn't have an obligation to send re- to send reinforcements. And because of internal police rivalries, so there was a lot of dysfunction within the Ottawa police itself at that time for a variety of reasons. Uh, they weren't operating very well internal, internally. And consequently, when they were engaging with their policing partners, the RCMP and the OPP, the OPP and the RCMP uh, had really serious lack of confidence in the Ottawa police, and they did not want to send their officers under the command of the Ottawa police because they did not have trust that the Ottawa police uh, would deploy them properly. So like that was actually the evidence that the OPP and the RCMP held back the reinforcements, right? And so... We, the citizens of Ottawa didn't know that was happening. And more importantly, and I'm kind of jumping ahead here a little bit, but the, the local leaders of Ottawa didn't really quite understand that that's what was going on. That the reason why the OPP and the RCMP were withholding their, 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 their reinforcements was because they lacked trust in the Ottawa police. Because had the local leaders understood that properly, then, you know, other, there were some mechanisms that could have been triggered to basically, take over the Ottawa police by another police force. And that was never exercised. And presumably that would have had to come from the provincial uh, solicitor general. And this is where the report obviously lacks some evidence because he refused to show up and provide it. But it still had some harsh words, as far as I understand, Mm -hmm. for the Ontario government and their seeming to just sit on their hands throughout this entire thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, there, there's two, there's two avenues that, that could have been followed given the, the lack of trust in the Ottawa police, the, the, our local police services board could have pilled the pin on that. And they have the right under our local policing legislation or provincial policing legislation to, to call in the OPP and say, look, you take over our police. They could have done that, but they never did. Similarly, there are ways that the provincial solicitor general could have done that, uh, or the provincial solicitor general could have just overrode the OPP commissioner and said, hey, get your asses down there and help them. Because this is this was the the federalism problem here is that, you know, public safety uh, and policing are, are, you know, primarily provincial jurisdiction matters. Right. So it, it really was it fell on the province, you know, the, the provincial government that if we if our p- local police are not able to provide public safety and secure the safety of, of Ottawa residents, then the provincial government really should be stepping in. But because it was in the national capital 
And because the ro- the protests were perceived as being directed at the federal government, our provincial government just sat back. Our premier, uh, Premier Doug Ford and the Solicitor General uh, and other provincial cabinet ministers literally sat back and wouldn't engage and and didn't do anything. And, um, you know, at the time that it happened, they really kind of were successful PR wise of sidestepping that, you know, that, you know, back in February of 2022, no one was really seriously pointing the finger, except for maybe some political scientists, I think, right, were ser- weren't seriously pointing the finger at the province. But really, that was where a really big failure occurred is, you know, they had the primary duty to assist Ottawa when their municipal police force wasn't able to provide public safety, and and they simply didn't, and and the commissioner, you know, quite properly called. And so, them I for think that. that sets out essentially, at least the public understanding of why Rouleau was willing to. I forget the exact phrasing he used, but accept the justification for invoking the uh, Emergencies Act as reasonable. Uh, we, I don't think we need to get into the specific definitions of public order, emergency, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but were you satisfied that this rose to the level of crises based on, I guess, your own perception, but also the evidence that was collected in here, that this required the federal government to take that unprecedented step? You know, this was the most sort of troubling thing for me personally, Ian. Um, you know, in terms of the position that we took in the commission, like as representing this Ottawa coalition of residents and businesses, we went in not having a position on whether or not the federal government had to invoke the Emergencies Act. What we wanted to, ins- you know, ensure was that it was uncovered where all the failures were at all these levels of government. And to say, you know, what went wrong here and what could be done better? Because uh, that, that, you know, for us, that was the crux of the issue. You know, in terms of invoking the Emergencies Act, though, like for me personally, like as a lawyer and a civil libertarian, right? Like, I was very uncomfortable with that. I was very disturbed by that. And, and, and the, the reality was, you know, as the commissioner, the commissioner said reluctantly, he felt it was justified. And, um, and, but it was because the other levels of government were failing, right? They weren't doing their job. Uh, it, it wasn't necessary in that sense. Like the Emergencies Act was not necessary if the other levels of government were doing their jobs. And they simply weren't. Um, you know, were there other ways or means to try to prompt or force or compel the other levels of government to take action? Uh, you know, maybe... Maybe the prime minister or, or even the mayor could have tried to guilt the provincial government into taking, you know, more meaningful action. Um, or, or our police services board, actually, that was one thing I kind of stepped over. Our police services board had the power to, um, under our police, our provincial police services act to say, we're turning over control of our police force to the OPP and the Ontario provincial police. And had that happened. Um, I don't think the Emergencies Act would have had to be invoked, but at the end of the day, because all these other levels of government and bodies and uh, failed to do their job, the federal government felt they didn't have an option. And um, I think, you know, in the same way the commissioner does, I think that's a reasonable conclusion to draw that they didn't so have an option. So when they invoked it, it was the basic tool they used to override all of these institutional failures and just push OPP and RCMP forces into Ottawa to 
end it? Because I know like they had a number of tools there, right? Yeah, well, they, they, yeah. Yeah, there was a number of measures that they invoked uh, that, uh, or a number of measures that they implemented through, uh, after invoking the act. Like they, you know, they froze funds from some of the organizers and uh, uh, they created zones. They made it really easy to bring in police services to come into Ottawa. Um, so like, by the way, like it wasn't just the OPP and the RCMP. Uh, there was Vancouver police. Many people may not know that out, out, out in BC. There was a large number, a large contingent of Vancouver police. There was some Calgary, a big contingent of Calgary police. Uh, the uh, Provinc- uh, Security de Quebec, the provincial police of Quebec, Gatineau police, Montreal police. Um, so police forces across the country because they needed a huge number of police to bring it to an end in a safe way. Um, I have to confess, Ian, like as a, you know, as, as a downtown resident and as a civil libertarian, I was very conflicted when it all came down because uh, for about four days, we had um, check stops at almost every intersection for a huge portion of downtown. Like at the end of my block, like where I live, there was uh, a police check. Like, and I'm just on a, like a, you know, resi- we're downtown, but like, we're not like on a main drag, but right at my corner where I have to drive every day was, was a police check. Uh, my, my office is about, I don't know, maybe six blocks from my home. So 90% of the time, obviously I'm walking, but there's a couple of times if I had to dash off in the evening. So from the six blocks from my home to my office, there was p- three police checks and you have to stop at every one. And as a civil libertarian, that's, it's a little chilling, I confess. But at the same time, as a downtown resident, and after like the chaos and disorder that we were experiencing, which was very frightening for those three weeks, right? Like they were just like completely lawless. And because there was a lack of enforcement, the, the lawlessness and the, 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 the boldness of the protesters were growing day after day after day, right? Um, we were all so lucky as they were, they, that there were no serious injuries. Uh, but anyways, it was, it it was, it was a very strange time in Ottawa there when they brought it to an end. But, uh, I have to say this, I, I give credit to the police that they, I think they did a very effective job in, um, bringing that protest to an end, uh, as safely as possible. And, uh, you know, it was, it was practically no injuries. And it was quite amazing. Finally, the report turns its eye to a consolidated list of recommendations. This spans, you know, all of the issues we talked about from policing, federal intelligence, uh, mm-hmm. as well as the future of the emergencies act itself. Um, I think a lot of the changes aren't, or the recommendations aren't surprising given, kind of how we broke it down and what we went through. Um, mm-hmm. What stood out for you in terms of the, how to restructure police forces or the information sharing of police forces that could prevent this in the future? And or, you know, what recommendations even were you a bit chilled by or if any? The information sharing stuff, actually, I, as a civil libertarian, I'm a bit concerned by a little bit. Like, I don't think that uh, information about organizers and protesters and protesters should be very easily or loosely transferred between police services um, or or national security agencies. 
Um, I, I don't, you know, I, I think that would be a very negative legacy of, uh, you know, this event and uh, uh, this inquiry if uh, the result is that police services are, you know, far more invasive uh, in how they scrutinize and monitor and investigate protests like before they even happen, right? So though some of those recommendations troubled me a little bit. Um, but the, the parts around, um, you know, how police forces can work together more effectively and having like protocols and mechanisms where, uh, you know, that can be triggered so that, you know, then we can bring everyone, you know, the police services can then more easily uh, function together, I think would be really helpful. Like, you know, one thing we didn't talk about, but, you know, 10 seconds was that I, I would add is that the the real stumbling block in Ottawa was also the police chief of Ottawa, you know, chief slowly. Um, he was very paranoid that everyone was kind of trying to get him, whether the OPP or the RCMP. And, and I think there's some, and his own police senior leaders. And I think there's some truth to that, right? He, he was being undermined in a lot of ways, but at the end of the day, I think, you know, he, he should have recognized the seriousness of the situation in Ottawa. And he also had the power to just call to, to surrender his command to a, you know, to another, uh, police service. And he didn't want to do that. So what the recommendations here talk about, you know, we should have protocols and mechanisms so that it's not just up to the discretion of one guy to say, Hey, you know, again, the police services board and the solicitor general also could have taken steps, but it was all, it was like ad hoc, right? There, there's no, you know, here are the kinds of things. If you see these kind of conditions, those would be the times that you should blow. That's more or less what the commissioner is recommend, recommending. And I, I can't agree enough. I think that was, you know, the real breakdown. It was, there was human failures and we didn't have in place proper protocols uh, for them to sort of see, hey, we've hit this threshold or this thing. And, you know, the policy or the protocol says now we should do X. Um, I, I think if we'd had something like that in place again, uh, we wouldn't have had the crisis we did yeah. uh, in Ottawa. Um, on the information sharing stuff, I love this recommendation 28 that the federal government while mindful of concerns related to privacy and government intrusiveness should you know consider whether it yeah. should just like collect social media of information on canadians mm -hmm. totally yeah no i was very disturbed by that as well right um and the you know we we shouldn't have the you know, our, our law enforcement or intelligence agency just like randomly scooping up social media to, to analyze them and keep it in dossiers, keep files on us, right? Uh, which we know in different contexts has happened. Um, you know, that's always troubling, right? That, you know, you know, right now, I would say there was probably, you know, the large number of people who participated in that protest who, you know, did not have ill designs and, you know, weren't, you know, Per, you know, getting involved in the more serious, disruptive or unlawful activities. And yet, there may well be now files on them, right, that that's drawn from their social media and so forth that the, the government is holding, or our police services are holding. And I think, you know, I think that's troubling. You know, it's, it's sort of the opposite end of the coin that so many people are putting so much information out there about themselves on social media. Um, and, you know, the government, I know, the police services say, well, then there's no expectation of privacy. But 
it's one thing that for people to put some information out there. It's another thing for police services or government agencies to systematically collect and and collate that information, you know, across years or across timelines, and and then keeping those files on those individuals, and then perhaps using it in future for, you know, who knows what other use, like whether it's a no fly list or if someone's applying for a government job or someone, you know, whatever. And and I think those things I don't think the commissioner really fully thought through or heard submissions on um and and so I'd like yeah there's there yeah that I mean, people have among the ones or that had plenty of concerns about. when all those stories around political parties uh data mining people and building voter profiles uh off publicly available social media information uh and we're bothered by that and this is that but mm-hmm. even you know more um, threatening to your liberties, right? It's one thing if a political party is just, you know, being annoying with messaging that's directly targeted to you, but it's another thing when, you know, it can affect your freedom, literally. <laughs> 100%. You know, one of the, my favorite thinkers in Canada for the last few years, Ian, uh, you know, in the space that you and I have, have, have worked in together is uh, a guy named uh, Ron Debert from Citizens Lab in Toronto. And, you know, he's, he's written books about how, you know, our, our privacy is under so much threat online uh, from sort of three actors. So he says, you know, government, uh, business, right? Like corporations, you know, whether it's you know, any of those social media companies, they're data mining us as well and creating profiles on us to, to market us. And then uh, criminal organizations, right? Uh, criminal organizations are collecting information about us. So it's, it's all very troubling, and I, I I think it's it's so unregulated, both in terms of you know, uh, the, the, you know the 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 businesses, but also but also in particular governments, because governments have so much more power than anyone else. And this idea that um, you know state agencies or law enforcement may be creating uh, files on us, uh, you know, which you know again, you know, some of the cases that BCCLA has worked on, Ian, you know, the 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 complaints we made about environmental groups being surveilled or spied on by RCMP and CSIS because they were protesting the Northern uh, Gateway Pipeline proposal it wasn't even a pipeline that was, was prepared. And we know from that case that they were creating files on people who were saying things online. It's Those are more disturbing things that uh, I don't think people are, uh, you know, uh, thinking about enough, but I think they have really serious consequences, uh, you know, for our for our freedom. Uh, there's two other sections on the recommendations. Uh, one of them is just on amending the Emergencies Act. The commissioner is recommending to remove the threats to the security of Canada definition from the act that draws from CSIS's definition, and to just better update what the threats would be that trigger that. Uh, and other things it talks about is it just basically improving the inquiry process. And it flagged that they needed to guarantee access to key documents and to, to overrule parliamentary privilege explicitly. I think as a direct answer to the questions Doug Ford and co tried to put up there. Um, anything else you saw in those kind of recommendations that you thought was noteworthy or else we can kind of move on to some broader questions, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, like the definitions of what's a national security threat. I, I, I guess they could be a bit more clarified post facto. 
uh, or clarified for next time, I think can be helpful. There was a lot of interesting legal arguments. I didn't engage on those issues this time. Um, you know, maybe if I was representing a civil liberties organization, well, not maybe if I was in representing a civil liberties org- organization, I would have gotten involved in those issues more significantly in terms of the protest. Yeah. There, or, or in terms of the process, pardon me, of this inquiry, um, I think we could have managed the issues of redactions and so forth if we would have had more time because we could have challenged them. We like we hardly had any time to well, we didn't have time to bring motions on the documents that we were getting. Like when we got to the cabinet ministers, Ian, it was really pretty absurd. We were getting documents. We were getting late to, we were getting disclosure like the night before. So like I would get back to my office at like nine PM. And then I would get an email and say, oh, here's all, you know, these documents that we just sort of found now for the Minister of National Defense for tomorrow. Oh, okay, great. That's what I'll, I'll go through, like, these 250 pages now before I, like, knock off. And so, and, there, and then the issue, then there was a bunch of redactions in them, which was upsetting to the convo organizers in particular. Um, and I think we could have brought some motions around that if we'd had time, but there was just no time. So, uh, which is another thing he recommends that we should have a little bit more time for the. It's a really uh, tough balance, right? Though, because I can totally understand the public desire and even the political desire for like quick answers. And obviously, you can't rush a process like this too much. But you also, if it drags on too long, you risk like going past an election. And then does it even matter in the same way as. It does. And so it's it's a really tough balance. And I think, you know, an extra six months isn't unreasonable in many ways, but it couldn't be three years, obviously. Yeah, I mean, well, I'll say this, like this, this commission of inquiry was unprecedented. There's nothing like it in Canadian history in terms of the the compressed time frame that was involved. Like I'll confess, I had a lot of issues with the commissioner and the commissioner council at time. And, you know, behind the scenes, I was giving them a hard time uh, at times, you know, to ensure this process was, you know, as fair and, 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 and transparent as possible. But I have to give them all enormous credit. Like it was really quite mm-hmm. superhuman what they did. Uh, well, in all council, all council that was involved in that for every body that was there, we were, it was almost like a bit like Stockholm syndrome, to be honest, like when we got about halfway through and, but we all felt like we were doing a service to Canadians. And I think, you know, here's one thing I'll say also, Ian, is that there was a lot of documents or information that was disclosed that um, would not have been disclosed if this was a longer process, because it was happening so fast. Council for those mm-hmm. government institutions themselves couldn't review them there was all kinds of things i was like oh my god this wasn't redacted like this is amazing like because i've been involved in a lot of other cases involving national security or policing and there was all tons of information that i could not believe was not redacted to be quite honest and it was large part because of the speed of the process they just they didn't have the people to look get their eyeballs on it so um yeah, I guess it was an inquiry in a hurry. There, there were a lot of pluses. There's a lot of minuses. Um, I think, on the whole, I think the people of Canada were probably well served because of the timeliness and because of the transparency. But I'll say, um, it was really, really hard on the people involved. I think there was a few things we could have drilled down on a bit more, um, and and more. Um, that's the right word. More in in de- um 
in a more meaningful way, we could have drilled down on some of the issues. But, uh, you know, on the whole, it it was pretty good. Another six months would have just like maybe made it a little less inhuman for those who were the participants. I think that leads me into one of the questions I got from a listener when I mentioned we were going to be doing this interview. And this is Sancho, who I, I think might be a lawyer, but he wanted to know a bit about the cabinet confidentiality waiver that the federal government granted. Uh, he mm-hmm. saw that the report says this is only mm-hmm. the fourth time it's happened in 371 federal inquiries. He asks, uh, how critical was yep. that to the commission's work? Was it the only way the commission could have gotten the information and, and or would the government have just stymied the commission by not waiving confidence? Uh, I'll say this. Uh, I think that the federal government uh, deserves a lot of credit. Like they didn't get the credit they deserved on the fact on that and the fact that they waived um, cabinet uh, confidentiality and cabinet privilege because it, it's almost never done. Right. I mean, I think they looked at it meaningfully and I guess they decided it would have been a big challenge for the commission to do its work if they didn't have those those cabinet documents but still there's commissions of inquiry that that's happened all the time where you just don't and that's just a little black box and we you have to kind of just draw inferences or assumptions or whatnot about how they deliberated or on what they deliberated or what were all the inputs so um i think that is one great uh that is one really good precedent from this inquiry uh a salutary one i mean the, the 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 our democracy didn't fall down or anything like that just because we got to see some of the stuff and uh like i i understand cabin privilege and i agree and i think it is important and i i think that it is should be fairly jealously guarded but i think when we have these really high crisis moments these really sort of pivotal moments uh where we see big cracks in our on our system of government or 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 crises i think governments should be prepared to waive cabinet privilege because it really did enhance the the process where we didn't get it though was at the provincial level right and that would have been very interesting and in many ways i think had we gotten into the provincial government of ontario uh it would have been more interesting in a way than the federal government because remember Mm -hmm. the federal government did not have a direct role in any of this until they invoked the emergencies act and even then when they emer- invoked the Emergencies Act, they then just gave direction. They just gave powers and directions to lower levels of government, right? Like again, as I was saying, it was pred- predominantly police services from across the country that came into Ottawa. You know, municipal police forces who, who brought it to an end. What had been far more interesting is to find out what was going on in the provincial cabinet uh, in Ontario. You know, I did get to cross-examine the Deputy Solicitor General of Ontario. Mm-hmm. So that's like the deputy minister of public safety federally. So this is the top public safety bureaucrat in Ontario. And I asked him, I said, how many meetings did you have with Premier Ford during these three weeks? And the answer was zero. No briefings. Zero briefings. And I mean, that just kind of spoke volumes. Uh he had almost no meetings with the solicitor general herself. And so I was like, like, what was cabinet talking? I'm sure that if we got into those cabinet confidences, the provincial level, it was probably, I'm certain it was just stuff like, Hey, this, you know, this is all blowing up on Trudeau. Like, 
let's just stay away from this and let the federal government deal with it. But the, the consequence of that, though, is that he was leaving, you know, the citizens of Ottawa or the, you know, vulnerable to, you know, perhaps really serious. Yeah, and they are provincial or, constituents. Uh, <laughs> Ottawa harm. is still in the province of Ontario. I mean, my my view on it is like exactly the federal government exactly. didn't have much to lose here, right? They, I think, were pretty confident they did the right thing. You know, it's a uh, unprecedented yep. step, and you don't take it lightly. And so, waiving it helps justify that and makes them look better, even if there's a little bit of embarrassment in there. There's a lot more that helps them, so that makes sense. And yep. you know, maybe if Ontario had waived, we just wouldn't actually learn that much because there wasn't any documents there because they didn't care. As you're kind of hinting at, but um, <laughs> that is fascinating. The other question we got, uh, and I think this is kind of a good place to lead us out of the conversation towards an end, because I am very conscious of the time out there in Ontario, uh, is from Ash, who asks, what kind of precedent does this set for the future government usage of the Emergencies Act when a different level of government or lower level uh, abdicates its responsibilities? And how can we ensure governments and police forces are acting and doing their jobs without having to rely on the Emergencies Act if this arises again? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, my general feeling, again, or view was that I, I wish that the Emergencies Act had not been invoked most significantly because I didn't want the precedent. Um, although this was a big event, I don't think it was the biggest, most serious event. I think it was something that it was definitely something that could have been controlled or managed if lower levels of government had responded appropriately. And I just don't like the idea of mm -hmm. a precedent, right? Like once it's done once, it's sort of like the notwithstanding clause, right? Once a you know government start using it more commonly. Um, but what can we do to ensure other levels of government respond properly? I mean, that's that's the challenge, right? And um, I think in many ways it was it was a unique failure. There's just so many things that were happening wrong here. Uh, it was kind of like a perfect storm. Like you know, we didn't talk about much detail. I kind of touched on it a bit, but like the the Ottawa police was in a very uniquely um, vulnerable time. They had a number of senior leaders who had just left, like in the year or two before. Uh, they were short-staffed a bit, slowly was having really serious problems being, you know, of, of being undermined by other uh, uh, leaders in, in, the, in the service. And so they were really not functional. We had problems in our municipal government, like our police services board was not working very well with our mayor. There was local political rivalry rivalries that you would have thought people would have like hey let's rise above it because our city's in crisis that's not the way it happened they kind of doubled down like you and i didn't even talk about like the fact that like our mayor removed our uh the chair of our police services board in the middle of this protest and then almost the entire rest of the board resigned and by the way that chair of that police services board was his main political rival who was gonna who had already announced that she was gonna run for mayor in the next election Right. So like there, I don't know, it was just kind of a unique event that I really hope I, I, I can't imagine. It's hard to imagine that we'd ever have an event like this again, where other levels of government would fail so spectacularly uh, in the way that we saw here. But, um, you know, hopefully from what we saw here, people will be able to get tools and answers or tools for next time to say, hey, you know, this level of government, this level of government, here are the things you should be doing, because look what happened in Ottawa, and here's this public inquiry report. Yeah. And 
the whole threat of a public inquiry is often a good tool to keep politicians from not going down this because I can't imagine it was fun for any of them either. You know, it, it really does, I think, show the wisdom of putting in this accountability tool in that legislation that it's automatic and required that you have to have a public inquiry. Like there's no legislation like it, right? You know, oh, if you do this, you must call a public inquiry. Um, you know, when you know that that's the consequence of your action, I'm sure that focuses the mind of any political leader. And, um, you know, they ensure that they'll look at, you know, through everything before they do it. So uh, I, I think, um, yeah, for sure. Uh, we're, we're fortunate that we have, uh, you know, legislation like that, that, that provides an accountability well, mechanism Maybe like that. I'll end it there. I guess my last question will just be if you have any other final takeaways or overall thoughts on, you know, the results of this inquiry and the future, I guess, of civil liberties. This is too big of a question now, but <laughs> how do you want to, what are your ending thoughts on this process? <laughs> Well, I, I'd say, you know, maybe uh, two things. Uh, the one is around the, the right to protest and freedom to protest. I'm, uh, I'm really, really troubled about um, what the takeaways will be for different people around this. Uh, you know, I, I, I believe very passionately in the right to protest. Uh, I'm, but I'm caught in this sort of conundrum where I'm sort of like opposing who these protesters are. Uh, not who they are, but how they protested because they were protesting to inflict harm on others, right? Like they, they viewed all of downtown people, uh, residents as sort of symbolic of Ottawa, quote unquote, right? And I, uh, but, uh, and that's why they were trying to hurt us because they were trying to get that out. But, um, I am concerned. I'm hopeful that we will think more meaningfully about what the contours of, peaceful protests and i hope we draw the right lessons from this right is that we should not make it harder to protest because of this um that's one thing and then the second thing is the um the misinformation aspect was supposed to be a big part of this this inquiry but it really wasn't we really didn't have any meaningful evidence around that um and i think you know what prompted this protest and how disconnected people were from each other um you know and the harm they were connecting they were causing to to people i think and the anger they were feeling you know the the anger was so intense uh that the protesters were feeling i think a lot of that was social media uh stoked and um unfortunately we might have need another public order another time to kind of get at that because at the end of the day we're all canadians you know and Although there were some really problematic individuals uh, involved in that protest, I, I, I still feel that we, I, 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 it was really, you know, unfortunate that there were so many people in Canada who felt so isolated and felt uh, disconnected from our government that they had to protest in such a way uh, for such a prolonged period, and that we couldn't respond to that effectively. To, you know. Um, engage with them so anyways we'll see no problem well thank you so much for all your time i'll put a link to your website and your twitter handle at paul champ law in our show notes uh, have a great evening and thanks for all your work on this issue uh thanks ian great talking to you and that has been politost find links to everything we talked about at politost.ca 
Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playcoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playcoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>